It's good to see you. And uh, hey, uh, those of you uh, who get to worship with us from uh, Knapp Street Campus, Kentwood, East Paris, I'm so glad that we get to be together and launch this uh, four-part end of summer uh, series this morning. It's just called uh, The Church. Those of you that join us online so faithfully, so glad that you're with us as well. So uh, have you been, uh, you been enjoying a bit of summer? Man, I sure hope so. Chris and I have been uh, enjoying our summer, just returning from a summer break. In fact, we recently returned from, uh, we had this, uh, uh, use this cottage up north for a week with our family. And by family, I mean Chris and I, our three kids, their spouses, and five grandkids for a total of 13 at this cottage. So uh, grandchildren, eight-year-old, two six-year-old granddaughters, and two, two, mind you, two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughters. Would you like to see a picture? Just one, just one, and it's not even of all of us. It's just this picture here of Chris enveloped by her four granddaughters. Now, uh, this week uh, up north, uh, just like you do water and you do pontoon boat rides, uh, pickleball, frisbee golf, fire pit in the evening, making s'mores. It was a wonderful week, mostly. And any of you who have ever been on a family vacation of any length, of any duration, to any place, understand what I mean by mostly. Is it just because you have a great week, that doesn't mean that every moment is a great moment. Are you with me on this? Did I mention that there were two, two and a half year olds? Uh, two, two and a half year olds. Have any of you ever witnessed a meltdown when a two and a half year old is way overdrawn and way overdue for a nap? I, I, I never have. I'm just talking hypothetically here. But this is a wonderful opportunity for us to watch our children parent their children. <laughs> so rather than offering unsolicited advice, I would just kind of retreat to a corner and read, perhaps thumb through a manual on how to negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> Not that that had any bearing on what I was witnessing across the room. Now, even when the kids were at their absolute emotional best, there's still that group activity thing. 13 people trying to agree on what to do next, when, where, and how long with differing interests. And this just happens whenever you get a larger group of, it happens when you get two people together and try to decide what to do when next and for how long. All I'm saying is, it's a wonderful week, but because family, it's, it can be a little chaotic and uh, a little complicated, but even though parts were complicated and chaotic when we're driving home. We're already plotting next summer and wanting to do this again. Not because it was perfect, mind you, but because it's, Chris and I, where we stand now, it's our hope, it's our desire to be connected as a family. Now, this image of family, imperfect family, chaotic family, uh, sometimes uh, difficult family, this image of family is one of the primary images that is used in our Bible for what a church is. That is, when you hear the word church family, that's not just a worn out cliche. The concept of church family or spiritual family is one of the most dominant images in our Bible for what a church gathering is. And in a series called The Church, four-part series uh, leading up through Labor Day, um, it allows us to look at the different images and kind of get a, uh, an, an important refresher course by looking at the different images of what a church is in our Bible. A church is a body. 
the church as a bride, and today uh, church as a family. So I, I know if, if when you think of church, this is an image that often and usually comes to mind. It's a church building. But where I, I want our thinking to go today is what if a church is a lot less like this and a lot more like this? What does it mean for a church to function as a church family? Now, uh, the passage of Scripture that we're going to dial in on today, it was written to people who lived uh, here. If we can take a look at them. Ah, right here in the city of Thessalonica. Now, it's uh, northern Greece. If you were to travel to Thessalonica today, you would find some of the ruins from 2,000 years ago, but they would be in the middle of this thriving city that happens to be Greece's second largest city of Thessaloniki. So here we've just got some uh, aerial footage of Thessalonica, what it would look like today. Again, Greece's second largest city. You have these old, old, centuries old historic buildings in the middle of this sprawling urban town. It's a university town. It's on the coast. It has this wonderful, youthful vibe because it's a university town outdoor restaurants. It, it is one of my favorite places in the world. And the Apostle Paul travels there just a couple decades after the killing of Jesus, after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And he begins to talk with his posse. He's got a guy by the name of Silas with him, another understudy by the name of Timothy. They travel to Thessalonica, and they begin to talk about how the God of the universe enters the planet in the person of Jesus and gives up himself for us. But it's not just the sacrifice of Jesus. It's also teaching these people the way of Jesus. And there are dozens of people that become part of a Jesus community in Thessalonica. Uh, if you want the full story, you can later on uh, check out Acts chapter 17 for what happened when Paul visits Thessalonica. Short story is he ends up traveling 300 miles to the south to the city of Corinth. And in your Bible, if your Bible, when you locate 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, these are two follow-up letters written from Corinth back to Thessalonica to help these baby Christians, these brand new believers, uh, to grow and stabilize their growing faith. And what I'm trying to say here is that First and Second Thessalonians aren't—they are not form letters; they are deep, heartfelt correspondence to dear friends. Because what Paul left behind in Thessalonica, what did he leave behind? He left behind his converts. Yeah, no, he left behind his friends. Yeah, he left behind a church family. And in 1 Thessalonians particularly, that first letter that we have written back to them, it's just laced, it's just sprinkled with family imagery. So those two images again, uh, a building and my wife with some grandchildren. What, what if a church is supposed to be a whole lot more like that and less like that. What if it's more than a building? See, as we explore this topic as church's family, for some of you, this will be revolutionary. If you're new to church, newer to church, I hope that today just transforms your mind in thinking about what a church community is and what it can be, what it means for you to be part of it and how you view other people. 
But for those of you who have been part of church for decades, my friends, we need a refresher course in family opportunity and family responsibility and family living within the context of a church. So today, church as spiritual family. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul uses three family images to talk about his relationship with these dear friends up north in Thessalonica. So we're going to follow and learn from these three images together. And the first family image he uses is the family image of a child. I want you to be kind of stunned by the words that the Apostle Paul is about to write about how he and his team, Paul, Silas, Timothy, how they entered Thessalonica and started interacting with people. Because in chapter 2, verse 7, we find these words. We were like, what, two words? We were like young children among you. Just be stunned by that for a second. The great Apostle Paul author of a dozen or so books in our Bible, a brilliant theologian, witness to the resurrected Jesus. And when they came to town, they did not come to town as all-stars or superstars or rock stars. He said, when we came to town, we were like what? Two words. We were like young children among you. What in the world is he talking about? When we came to Thessalonica, we were like young children among you. We didn't want to take a nap and we threw a fit. What's he talking about here? What Paul's talking about is not that they were childish. (laughs) What Paul's talking about is that they were childlike. We were like young children about you. Now, in order to figure out really what he means by this, I think it's helpful, like, this is like verse 7, to go back up to verse 5, because this is what Paul writes in verse 5. He says, you know that we never use flattery, nor did we, we put on a mask in order as a cover-up, in order to cover up our greed. He says, man, God is our witness, so help us God. We didn't use flattery, and we didn't put on a mask as a cover-up. He says, instead, we were like young children among you. Now, just this image of a child here, uh, there is something about a two-and-a-half-year-old, generally speaking, that has not yet learned the art of political maneuvering, generally speaking. Uh, A a two and a half year old has yet to master this art of kind of sidling up to someone to gather information to then share against them with other people. Just that art form has not been gathered yet. Now, a two and a half year old can say, I love you, grandpa. Yes. And a two and a half year old can also say, I want cookies. But most two and a half year olds have not yet learned the art of saying, I love you, grandpa. Can I have cookies? in pulling these two together, using flattery, using a compliment in order to get something that they want. I believe what Paul is saying when he says, we were like young children among you is this. We were, we, when we were among you, we didn't pretend to be something we weren't. And we didn't pretend not to be something that we were. There is in your basic two, two and a half year old, a what you see is what you get kind of thing. What you see is what you get. And Paul says, what you saw, that was, that was us. We were like young children among you. No pretense. We weren't pretending two words for you today. These words right here, be real. In and with and around your church family, be real. Don't pretend to be something you're not. 
Don't pretend that your family's perfect. It's probably not. <laughs> don't pretend that your marriage is perfect. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know it's not. <laughs> don't pretend that your past is perfect. Just be real. Don't pretend when you're with your church family. Don't pretend that you don't struggle. Become a model of someone who struggles well. <laughs> struggle better. That's your challenge. <laughs> struggle while trusting. Struggle while growing. Bring the real you. The, your church family probably needs the real you, not a photoshopped, image-crafted version of you. Uh, the, the, the real imperfect you, but a real imperfect you that is learning and that is growing and that is moving. Be real. One more thing about this be real thing where Paul says, we came to you like young children without pretense. We didn't pretend to be something we weren't. By be real, I don't mean that everybody needs to know everything that's going on all the time. Some things are kind of personal and private. Look at me. But somebody needs to know. It's not that everybody in your church family needs to know, but somebody needs to know. When you find yourself drifting into a dark depression and you don't know how to get out of it, someone in your church family needs to know. Someone ought to know. When you begin to experience levels of anxiety that you have never experienced before and you don't know what to do with it, someone in your church family ought to know. When there was a pornography habit in your past and you thought that's over with, that's done with, and it's back, someone in your church family needs to know. If you have a surgery scheduled and it is scaring you to death, someone needs to know in your church family. If you enter a season when you are so deeply disappointed and God seems so far away, someone ought to know. Now, like, I don't know who that someone is for you. That someone might be another believer in your church that you have journeyed lots of miles with and it's just a text to say, listen, I need to let you know what's going on. It may be a wise spiritual advisor in your church that you've never met but that you've heard of. A seasoned believer, man or woman in your church, getting their contact information saying, hey, I don't think we've met, but uh, I'm dealing with something and I, I, I need someone to help point me in a life-giving direction. This might be at, your, at each of our campuses, we have directors of men's ministries and women's ministries unburdening yourself and allowing them to point you in a life-giving direction. This might be your small group leader or someone else in your small group. I don't know who this is, but my plea to you is this. If while I was going through that riff, someone ought to know, someone ought to know, someone ought to know. If you look deep inside and went, oh my goodness, someone ought to know. Here's my challenge to you today. Here's my plea. Please reach out to someone before today expires. Or this is just going to get put on that pile of good intentions. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. And someday never comes. 
Can I plead with you? Can I ask you before you fall asleep tonight? Make a call, send a text, send an email, at least the initial step of saying, I need to talk, I need to talk. When Paul wrote back to his friends in Thessalonica, these weren't just converts, these weren't just scattered believers, he was writing to a church family. And he uses family imagery in his letter to them. And the first image he uses is the image of a child. He said, when we were with you, we were real. We weren't pretending to be something we weren't. We behave as a family. Be real, don't pretend. Be real, don't pretend. That's image number one. Image number two is the image of a mom. Now, Paul, a man, uses feminine imagery to talk about how he connected with these believers in Thessalonica. Check out this with me. It's in the second half, last part of verse 7, first part of verse 8. He says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, that's how we took care of you. A mom nursing a baby is like one of the most tender, caring images I can think of. And so when Paul wanted to communicate how much he loved these people and how much he wanted to take care of them as their spiritual journey got started, the imagery he reached for for himself was the imagery of a nursing mom. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. And he goes a step deeper. He says, when we came to town, we had a message. It was a message of the good news of Jesus, the, the gospel. But, but we didn't just give you information. We gave you us. Check this out. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our, but our what? But our lives as well. When we came to town, we brought you the gospel. We brought you the good news. We brought you the information about Jesus. But we also brought you us. You got us, not just it. <laughs> Powerful statement. Now, that, that word gospel that's used there, there's a gospel, you, you, you break the word down. The word gospel literally means good news. We brought to you the gospel. We brought to you the good news. Because it, it, it was, it was good news. It was good news that God did not abandon us to ourselves. <laughs> it was good news that God was in pursuit of us even when we were not in pursuit of him. It was good news that our gracious God stepped into the brokenness in order to repair and restore all that is broken and lost and all the breaking that we do, not just what's broken in us, but the brokenness that we cause. It's good news that God was in pursuit. It's good news that Jesus came and when he was crucified, when he died, I don't know if you know this, when Jesus dies on the cross, he's paying off debts that weren't his. Man, he's paying off debts that were mine. He's paying off debts that were yours. Someone else came to pay off your debts. That's two words. That's good news. 
it's good news that when we couldn't reach up to God, he reached down to us. I find it good news that God doesn't accept me into his family because I'm kind and because I'm generous. He accepts me into his family because he's kind and because he's generous. That's what we mean when we use this word grace. Something comes to us from the gracious heart of God. That's good news. It's good news that God moves in and changes us from the inside out. Paul says, when we came to you, we brought you the information of the good news, but we brought you something else. We also brought you us. And I, I, I want to belabor this point where he says, we're not, you brought, we brought you, can we go to the last verse? Can we go back one slide? He says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because some of us say, yeah, the gospel, that's what people need. They need the information. They do. They desperately need the information. But when they believe it, the information, they become part of a church family where they get you. They get you. So three words when you give yourself to somebody else, time, energy, and attention. Just as a nursing, just as a mom nursing a child, that's how we cared for you. My friends, we're talking time, we're talking energy, we're talking attention. Let me ask this question. Who, who right now in your church family, does someone come to mind that could benefit greatly from your time, your energy, and your attention? I mean, it really might be helpful to think of someone, an actual face, an actual name. Someone you're connected to in the context of church family who could really benefit from your time, your energy, and your attention. It might be someone in crisis, a family crisis, a job crisis, a health crisis, an emotional crisis of one sort or another. What it means to give caring love, baby, it's going to cost you something. To live out of this like church family thing, it, it, it's, it's going to cost time, energy, and attention. Now, let me dispel something. It is impossible, I believe, for a large church, for everybody to be looking out for everybody. I need to repeat this two or three times a year. It is logistically impossible and unrealistic just to say, okay, everybody look out for everybody. It's highly unrealistic. However, it is very realistic to request everybody's looking out for somebody. I'm telling you, it is a magical thing when everybody's looking out for somebody. So my question here is just, who are you looking out for right now? Paul used the imagery of a mom, a nursing mom, caring for a child, time, energy, and attention. Who are you looking out for? It might be someone in crisis. It might not be. It might be somebody who looks rock steady, steady and faithful. My friends, often steady, faithful people remain steady and faithful because of the encouragement that they need, that they receive to be steady and faithful. I'm telling you, just a text to say, you can't believe how much you mean to us, to our family. Grabbing someone by the elbow in one of our atriums and just saying, we appreciate you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. Often faithful, steady people remain faithful, steady people. Because of words of time, energy, and attention they receive just to remind them that what they're doing is critical and important. Does anyone come to mind? 
And can I ask you, if someone comes to your mind that could really benefit in your church family from just some time, energy, and attention, can I encourage you? Can I encourage you? to reach out before the day expires so this doesn't get lost, at least as an initial step to say, hey, I need to tell you something. At least get the conversation started. First image is an uh, image of a child, be real. Second image is an image of a nursing mom. It's just this caring, tender love. And I just know what some of you are thinking. Dude, a nursing mom, this is so touchy-feely. Sometimes people need the tenderness of a mother and sometimes they need the strong voice of a father. You're so right. And this father is image number three. Image number three is a dad. And so right after talking, right after writing, Paul writing about how he was a mom to them, now he writes about how he was a dad to them. But this dad thing, it feels to have some directional force, how he was guiding them, encouraging them, and urging them. So uh, check this out in verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a, as a father deals with his own kids, deals with his own children. In this heartfelt correspondence, traveling from Corinth up to Thessalonica, Paul says, you know, you know that the way we interacted with each of you was like a dad, like a father, interacting with his kids. And in Greek-Roman culture, typically, in Greek and Roman culture, it was the father's responsibility to give moral and ethical guidance to his sons and daughters. And so the three words that Paul uses in this father-child relationship, he uses the words of encouraging, comforting, and urging you. That would be in verse 12. We dealt with each of you like a dad deals with his kids, encouraging, comforting, and urging you. And then he would go on to say to live lives worthy of God who has given you this new calling into his kingdom and into his glory. You need to live into this new calling that you received. So we urge you, we comfort you. Uh, we encourage you, we urge you, we comfort you. It's the strong, it's not just the tender touch of a mom. It is the strong voice of a dad. Over my break this summer, I unearthed a contract that was written 20 years ago, winter of 2002. Uh, I was just going through this stack of papers, articles I intended to read sometime, an owner's manual for a leaf blower type thing, working my way through this, and I found a contract between myself and a child. It is an academic contract that I crafted. It is 21, is 22 years old. I believe the child at the time was 13 or 14. Now, Chris and I have three children, Sarah, Andrew, and Alex, and so I was just going to say one of my children in order to give uh, anonymity and privacy. But no, this was Andrew. <laughs> this was Andrew. Winter 2002 school agreement with Andrew. Paragraph one, Andrew agrees. Andrew agrees to the following goals, that all homework assignments are handed in that his math quiz grades will not, will not fall below a C, that his teachers will notice an improvement in his class participation and overall spirit in class. Ah, this wasn't just an academic issue, this may have been a behavioral issue as well. Andrew is a smart kid. 
Trust me, this wasn't an issue of intelligence. This was an issue of motivation. That's Andrew's part. Dad, dad's responsibility, paragraph two. I, dad, agree to limit my inquiry of Andrew's progress to once a week on Friday. <laughs> when the weekly math progress report is brought home, I, dad, may also request that teachers send home notes updating me on Andrew's participation progress. That's dad's part. Paragraph number three, mom. Mom agrees to cheer Andrew's progress while allowing progress to be monitored by dad. <laughs> Read into that whatever drama you desire to. <laughs> Bottom line, if there are not marked improvement within three weeks, March 29, this agreement will be revisited to make new recommendations. You know what this smells like to me? It smells like fatigue. Did it work? I don't have a clue. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm just glad I hung on to it. All I'm trying to say is this, that sometimes people get moving because somebody encourages them to get moving. Sometimes people in your church family will get moving because you encourage them to get moving, and this was at least an attempt to get someone moving. Sometimes it's not getting moving, sometimes it's the courage and stamina to keep moving when someone's out of gas. And they're just disappointed and tired and they wanna throw in the towel. Sometimes people keep moving forward because someone in their church family encourages them to keep moving forward. This is not just the tender touch of a mom. This can be the strong directive voice of a dad. There should be conversations taking place all over Ada Bible Church, all around the family of Ada Bible Church that sound like this. You've been complaining about your marriage for two years. Have you set up an appointment with a counselor? No. It's embarrassing. You get in there, you bear your, you bear, you bear your soul, you have to go through all this material. Yeah, 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 I know, it's all those things. But I think there's a shot here that there can be life on the other side. What if there could be a point on the other side where you actually genuinely enjoy being in each other's company? What if the very environment where you experience the most frustration and pain, what if there's a season downstream where you begin to experience beauty? I need to encourage you to make an appointment and to keep the appointment. Why would that conversation take place? Because a lot of times people get moving because somebody encourages them to move. My friends, I gotta tell you, there should be dozens of conversations where you are encouraging other people to reconnect with their church family. I mean, it's like conversations that go something like this. Man, we used to see you every week. And then COVID hits and all of us are watching online and you're watching faithfully online and then watching sometimes online. And our last series was 10 weeks long, 10 questions Jesus asked. Did, question, did you catch any of them? Yeah, no, I know, I know. And just be able to say, I predict, I see, I see your future. I see a spiritual drought in your future. The current of our culture 
is so deep and so fast, and it is a current of self-absorbed, self-centered commercialism, polarization. I'm telling you, you will get swept downstream and swept under. Some of you need to be pleading with a friend. What, that was a third term, urging. I encourage you, I comfort you, I urge you. Just to say, I just want to urge you to reconnect with the way of Jesus and the family of Jesus. I don't know how you can thrive spiritually in this culture and cut yourself off from that. Uh, why would those conversations take place? My friends, those conversations should take place because sometimes someone gets moving because someone encourages them to get moving. A conversation where you say, listen, I've known you for 16 years. You have become a professional cynic. There is just this darkness that has come in and settled over your life. And I know you're in church almost every week, but you're living without hope. You used to live with hope and grace, and I'm just, I'm just not seeing it. I just want to urge you to try to figure out what's going on inside. Because sometimes people start moving because someone encourages them to start moving. Or when they're tired, exhausted, and deeply disappointed, they keep moving forward because someone encourages them. Someone recourages them to keep moving forward. This isn't just the tender touch of a mom. This is the, it's the strong voice of a dad. Paul says, we, when we came to you, we came to you like our spiritual family. We appeared as little kids. We were real without pretense. We weren't pretending we loved you so much. We were like nursing moms. We gave you our time, our energy, and attention. And we also gave you the strong, directive voice of a father, encouraging you and comforting you and urging you to live into this new calling that you have received. Now, if a church is just a, a building where you go to services, you're pretty much off the hook. But if this church's family thing is, is, is real, spiritual family, man, that all kinds of implications for how you see yourself and how you view other people within that family. Three summers ago next month, my, 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 my dad turned 80. And so it was one of those family reunion moments where we kind of came together. We took a picture of the occasion. It was taken right in the back of our Cascade campus. That, my friends, is what happened when a dude has seven kids who have kids who have kids. That's not even, that's not even all of us. What if when you picture the image of a church... Instead of a building in Grand Rapids, you picture something like that. No, 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 no not perfect. A little chaos, a little confusion like there is with every family. But church is family. When we say, welcome to Ada Bible Church, whatever we're saying, welcome to the family. There were three images we drew your attention to today, the image of a child, the image of a mom, and the image of the dad. Which one needs to stick with you as you move into your day? Is be real. Deal about someone ought to know, someone ought to know, someone ought to know. 
Some of you should be pulling your phones out in the parking lot before you drive home and just saying, I just need you to know that because someone needs to know. And a deal about a mom, this nursing mom, time, energy, attention, who, who in your church family could really benefit from your love, from your caring tenderness, your time, energy, and attention. I'm telling you, unleashing a congregation to step into each other's lives in tender care, it's a powerful thing. And this dad thing probably occurred to more of you than a few of you. Not just the tender touch of a mom, but the forceful, strong encouragement of a dad. Because sometimes people get moving. Because <laughs> someone encourages them to get moving. Which one of these hit you today? And my plea, do not let your day expire before at least reaching out and taking an additional step. There are several powerful images that the Bible gives us for what a church is. A church is a body. The church is a bride. One of the most dominant images is the church as a family. And so, when we say, welcome to Ada Bible Church, just saying, welcome to the family. And now I ask that our gracious God will guide your heart and your steps and your words. May your gracious God give you creativity to know how to speak and who to reach out to. May our gracious God be pleased to love us as we love and encourage each other. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who came here because of his great love for us. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today for part one. We'll see you next week.